invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 119. We are looking over the last several weeks, we've begun to look at Psalm 119. We've looked at uh, each of the sections of this psalm uh, is uh, titled by a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So uh, the very first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, uh, verses 1 through 8 of this psalm, Aleph, all of the words that begin each verse begin with that letter. And then uh, Beit, uh, the second letter in the Hebrew alphabet, all of the words that begin in that section begin with the letter Beit. And then uh, Gimel, uh, 17 through 24, uh, where uh, each word begins with the letter Gimel. And then we come tonight to uh, verses 25 through 32 of Psalm 119, where each word in the, each verse begins with the letter Dalet. Um, and uh, so you get, you get to learn the Hebrew alphabet as we go, go along. Um, and uh, it's interesting that uh, uh, it would be nice if this could translate into the English uh, translations. It, it doesn't always come through. It doesn't come through. But... Uh, in this section, verses 25 through 32, five times the word, the Hebrew word for way, which begins with the letter uh, Dalet, uh, is derek uh, in Hebrew. Uh, and uh, um, that word is used five times in uh, the verses of this section. But uh, as we come to this, uh, let's hear uh, the word of God as it is found in uh, Psalm 119, verses 25 through 32. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I have set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Eternal God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this word that we have just read. It is that word which we need to hear. And you have placed us here at this time and this evening. And this is the word that you have given to us. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit, who superintends all such things, would speak to our hearts and help us in this pilgrim way to be faithful and to follow after you we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
the, it's not a surprise to anyone who has been a Christian for any length of time that the Christian life is not uniform. The Christian life is a life that, in which we experience moments of invigoration and joy, sometimes ecstatic invigoration and joy. We think of those moments that God comes to us and speaks to us in such a powerful way through his word and gives us a sense of assurance and happiness and knowing that Christ is our Savior and that we belong to him and that he will bring us all the way through the trials and tribulations of this life into his eternal kingdom. And the fruit of the Spirit is evident as it minist- the Spirit ministers the grace of the gospel in our hearts and we experience those times. There are other times when we experience something just the, in the opposite direction, where it seems that God is distant and our feelings are not enlivened. We hear of things, but we feel disconnected from what we hear. We read in the letters to the churches by the apostles of keeping our minds set on heavenly things. And there are times when it seems as though my present circumstances are such that I have great difficulty focusing upon the things of the Spirit, heavenly things. And it seems that our soul is cleaving to the dust. And that's what the condition of the psalmist is as he gives us these words that we have just read tonight. I want to cover this psalm under three headings. And uh, first of all, the plight of the psalmist. Secondly, the prayer of the psalmist. And thirdly, the persistence of the psalmist. I got all P's. It doesn't happen with me very often. The plight, the prayer, and the persistence. So I want us to think about the descriptive language that he uses here to describe himself. Notice in verse 25, my soul clings to the dust. And then he says in verse 28, my soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. And it is almost as though those two verses, 25 and 28, form what commentators call an inclusion. And that the first section of this psalm is verses 25 through 28, in which the psalmist engages with God about his, the state of his soul. And then in the second section, verses 29 through 32, we have more of a description of his resolve and his persistence in uh, using 
um, the word of God to, for the Lord to minister to him in these circumstances. And so as we consider the plight of, this, of the psalmist in, this, uh, in these verses, the believer in Christ may from time to time have his or her sense of life sapped from them. Your soul may, from time to time, feel estranged from God and from you may feel as though you are, as the psalmist describes it, clinging to the dust, that all things of the earth have much more reality to you than the things of heaven. And though you grieve over that circumstances, well, after that circumstance, you yet persistently follow after God. And that's, I think, the essence of this section. He describes himself as having almost a collapsed soul within him. He's dragged down. He's laid low. He feels himself to be spiritually overwhelmed with anxiety. Possibly there is sin in his life. Maybe the Lord is working in his life by way of discipline. Uh, We don't know the circumstances uh, that led to this, but he feels himself just bound up and unable to be free. This idea of clinging to the dust, the word describes um, clay that is brought together and holds together. The word is also the word that is used in Genesis to describe a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to or hold fast to his wife. And, And so this feeling of of clinging or holding fast, not to the word, but to the dust. He's thirsty. He's hungry. He's without a sense of God's presence. And he feels that life is ebbing away. And he feels his life to be threatened by spiritual death. My soul melts for sorrow, he says. The Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, describes the experience of believers and says that sometimes, by sometimes through the neglect of the means of grace, sometimes through a sin that can be committed that wounds the conscience, The spirit is grieved. Sometimes God withdraws the light of his countenance. And this is found in chapter 18, verse 4. And the confession says that they suffer even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. And the confession goes on to say, yet they are never utterly destitute of the seed of God and of the life of faith, or the love for Christ and the brethren. And the Holy Spirit does in due time revive them. And that's what we see. We see something of this 
process in these words. There is a time of suffering, a time of bereavement, a time of sorrow, a time of anxiety and difficulty and fear, where God seems so far. You think of some examples of this. Think of the Apostle Peter. The Lord said to Peter, Satan desired to have him and to sift him like wheat. And the Lord told Peter, he said, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Think about what Peter went through. Think about what that sifting must have been. We read that he went about and he went out into the night weeping. And uh, Peter suffered. It was great spiritual suffering and darkness. Satan was allowed for a period of time to take Peter's soul and to twist it all up and to sift him. It's a time of darkness and grief and guilt for Peter. Wonderful thing is that the Lord tells him that he was held fast through it all by his intercession. The Lord kept him and brought him through that dark night that he suffered. So the psalmist is in a state or in a plight of a loss of the sense of joy in life, the sense of grief and sorrow for the fact that he seems to be unable to experience the power of God's word. Sometimes we experience those very same things. Think next of the prayer of the psalmist. There's prayer that runs through this whole section. And um, the first thing to know is that he prays. (laughs) The very first verse is a prayer. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. He knows that the one thing that he needs is life. He's dying. And he needs God to give him life. And so the first thing we know is that sometimes we're, when we feel abandoned or out in the dark, overwhelmed by our circumstances, removed from a sense of the pleasure in the things of the word, we are disinclined to pray. We are not inclined to pray during those times. One of the great things that this psalm teaches us is to pray. And to cry out to God as the psalmist does. And sometimes we mull things over in our minds. And we turn things over and over and over. And as we do that, the worry and the anxiety increases as the wheels turn and turn and turn. Fear can sometimes consume us. 
But the answer lies in directing our thoughts to God and pouring our thoughts out to him as the psalmist does here. Charles Bridges writes these words. He says, this cry itself is an exercise of faith. He says, some are ready to give up or delay their duty when they are unable to bring their heart. We are not to wait. We are not to wait for a quickening grace before we cry out to God for it. He says, praying helps praying. I thought that was really good. Praying helps praying. So when you are most disinclined to pray, when God seems most distant to you, and life seems to have descended upon you like a mist of darkness, cry out to God and express to Him what you are experiencing and what you need. Oh Lord, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. So that's the first thing. Pray. And remember, opening your mouth to God is like sometimes the th- taking the dam away from the flood. It opens up the heart and we are able to express ourselves if we will just begin. If we will just begin. Pray. Praying helps us to pray. But how is he to pray? How does he pray? I would note that he prays honestly. He prays honestly. He says, he tells God, he says in verse 20 and 26, when I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. There's a lot contained in those words. When I told of my ways, there you have that word way again. My ways. My story, my life, my pitiable life. I told you about it. So what is he saying? Tell God of your ways. Pray honestly about things the way they really are. Tell God about your difficulties. Tell him because he is alone the one who can help your soul. Have you ever had a time when you needed to unburden yourself to a friend and you sat down with someone that you know and you trust and you unburdened? You unburdened your soul, you told it all. Now think about what that is when we He's saying here, I told of my ways. I am burdened myself to you. You are the one, you are the only one who can hear me and understand. And he says that he told, of God, told God all about his circumstances, all about what he was going through. And this is what we should do. We should tell God our ways. Jonathan Edwards in, you know, he, he came, had those resolutions that he made. 
one of his resolutions was a resolution that he made after reading this verse. And he said, I resolve to exercise myself in this all my life long with the greatest openness to declare my ways to God and to lay open my soul to him. All my sins, all my temptations, my difficulties, my sorrows, my fears, my hopes, desires, and everything, and every circumstance. Tell God everything. That's what he's saying. I resolve to tell God everything, to lay open my soul to God. One of the great uh, harmful things that we do we do it because we want to protect ourselves in human relationships, is that we do not lay open our souls. And it's harmful for us not to have those relationships where we can honestly speak openly to another. And I think what Edwards is describing here is he's saying, this is what I'm going to do with God. I'm going to speak openly with him. I'm not going to keep it in. I'm going to tell everything. Do that. Pray honestly. The second thing I know is that he prayed passionately. When you are feeling yourselves threatened by death, you don't Pray in a lackadaisical, distracted way, but you pray passionately, Lord, Lord, my soul clings to the dust, give me life. My soul melts away for sorrow. Stand me up, strengthen me, raise me from the dead. That kind of a prayer has got to be a passionate prayer, a zealous prayer, Lord, Help me. He prayed honestly. He prayed passionately. And I notice as well that he prayed clingingly. He prayed clingingly. Notice that he keeps saying, according to your word. He keeps referencing this. Verse uh, 25, verse 28, according to your word. And then in verse 31, I cling to your testimonies. This idea of it of of holding on tightly, clinging to the testimonies of God, as it were, binding yourself to the Word of God so that it's the Word of God that is the only thing holding you in this time. According to your Word, I pray, he says. What is he clinging to? He's clinging to the promises of God to him, the covenant He is claiming the covenant. There is the promise that God is his God. The promises that we find in Scripture, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 25, as thy days, so shall thy strength be. I love that. As thy days, so shall thy strength be. So here God says, each day that I allot to you to live on life, live your life out, each day that you are given to serve, I will strengthen you. I will 
give you what you need. I will be your God. I will sustain you. That's why he says, throughout this section, he says, according to your word, that is, according to the promises of the covenant, according to God's almighty, powerful promise of sustenance. Isaiah 40, 29 and following, he gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Let your soul hold fast to that promise. God has promised to uphold you. God has promised to give power to those who are faint. Well, that's how he prayed. He prayed honestly. He prayed passionately. He prayed clingingly to the promise of God. And then, uh, but for what does he pray? Well, he prays for resurrection life. Give me life. And the commentator noted that uh, this prayer, give me life, is found like a scarlet thread all through Psalm 119. Throughout his interactions with the Word of God, he says to God, give me life. It's always you, you remember that the primeval promise of God to his people is that he will be their God. He will give them life. Jesus said, he who believes in me has eternal life. That promise of life. He knows it. He's experienced it. But he knows he doesn't have enough of it. And so he's praying throughout, give me life. Raise me from the dead. And of course, we who are in Christ and who live in the time after the resurrection of Christ know that Christ himself has been raised from the dead and the Spirit is given to him that he pours it out upon his people. He quickens them and he gives them new resurrection, life. And this is the promise of Jeremiah 31. It's the promise of Ezekiel 36. It's the promise of the Holy Spirit, where we who are dead in ourselves will be raised and given new life. And so the, so the psalmist here prays, Lord, give me life. Give me spiritual life. Raise me up. Cause me to stand. Enable me by your power to increase in strength and vitality. So he prays for life. He also prays that God would teach him his wondrous works. He acknowledges in verse 27, he says, make me understand the way of your precepts. That is, he acknowledges that he doesn't understand. You have to make me understand Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. And as I studied this section, I got really hung up on this verse, in a good way hung up. I notice immediately, first of all, he, he, he senses that there's something that lies beyond, that he can't see apart from God giving him understanding. Make me understand. And then he also says that there is God's path, your ways, the ways of your precepts. There is a path, there is a, 
almost a roadway or a path of God in history and how he reveals himself to his people. There's God's holy character, but there is also God's mighty redemptive deeds. He wants to understand more of what God has done and who God is. Give me understanding of your precepts and the ways of your precepts, and I will, he says, meditate on your wondrous works. The word meditate is an interesting one. It means, actually, to speak. The Hebrew word means to muse or to speak. And the basic idea here is of rehearsing something over and over in your mind. Now think about that in contrast to the temptation that we have to muse over our circumstances. The musing that we do, the worrying that we do, the turning things over and over and over until we are paralyzed with anxiety and fear. And what is he saying here? Give me understanding of your ways, and then I will muse, and then I will repeat, instead of my sad story, your great story. The greatness of your ways, your, the wonder of what, who you are and what you have done. And I will speak, and I will meditate, and I will repeat over and over again the things that you have done. The wonderful works of God. The wonderful works of God. It's interesting that uh, in our pastor's fellowship, we're, uh, we're supposed to be reading a book by that title, The Wonderful Works of God. And I, uh, I, I noticed that that word, the uh, wondrous works of God, can be found in other places, and I want to mention them to you. For example, the Virgin Mary, she says in Luke 1.49, He who is mighty has done great things for me. You read that over and you think, you know, he who is mighty has done great things for me. We tend to read through that but what that, the word behind it is the word that we get, uh, the word that we get, uh, it's magala, uh, great things, that is the, the mighty and the work, the wondrous things of God. And, and, and Mary is saying here that he who is mighty has done wondrous things, wondrous things. And what a, what a wonderful thing it is that God did for her and for us uh, through the incarnation of the Son of God. Psalm 71 is another place where we find this word. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You have done great things. Who is like you? And just to note, Psalm 71 is one of those psalms of David's old age, and I was reading that psalm and. And I noted that David says, My mouth will tell of your righteous acts and your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. And then another place we come across this idea of the wondrous works of God is in the book of Acts, where the 
disciples in the upper room, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they give utterance and in speaking uh, other languages. And others that were gathered from all different countries heard them speaking in their own language. And this is what we read in Acts 2, uh, 10 through 11. They were all amazed and marveled. Strangers of Rome and Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do not hear them speak in our, in our uh, uh, do we not hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God? The wonderful works of God, the magnificent, the excellent, the splendid, the wonderful, the glorious, the glorious works of God. These marvelous things that God has done, these are the things that were proclaimed at that time, the wonderful things of God. Herman Bovink, uh, in the book I referenced a minute ago, says, the Christian faith is not some philosophical formula of an explanation of the world, but it is a confession of the wonderful works of God, which have been brought through the ages. They cover the whole world. And they await the fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. These works of God naturally compel admiration and worship. And so here then is a call to rehearse in our minds not our own difficulties, but to rehearse in our minds the greatness of God. And to have your mind so filled with his wondrous works, that you are overwhelmed with awe and wonder and admiration and joy and worship. And this word is connected as well with the singing of ancient Israel. Sing unto him, sing praises to him, tell when you do sing, Tell of his wondrous works. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Singing is one of the great ways that we tell the wondrous works of God. So the psalmist prays, that God would give him understanding and open and illuminate his mind to see things too great for him to understand in his own strength, but that his mind would be so illuminated and so taken up in the things that God has done for him and in the world, that his mind would be so taken up with it that he would forget his troubles for a little bit. And that's what you and I need to do. And thirdly, we see his persistence and his resolve. And we see this in the second half of the psalm. We notice, first of all, in verse 29, part of his, well, there's a list of things that, these are all action resolve things that he says. Notice this. Uh, verse 29, put false things far from me. Verse 30, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. Verse 31, I will cling to your testimonies. Verse 32, I will run in the way of your commandments. And all of these are statements of resolve, of a resolute determination 
to action and to follow after the word of God. The first is to get that which is false far from him. Boy, I'll tell you, we live in a world in which we're surrounded by falsehood. We're surrounded by seductive voices. And sometimes we think, you know, well, you know, I know better. That doesn't penetrate. I, I, I hear it, but it doesn't affect me. But the psalmist has a sense of the, fear, the fearful weakness that resides within him. He senses that, that he can't have that attitude. He needs to know that the powers of darkness and the power of falsehood, the power of lies, can find a place in his heart as well. So he's not going to dally with it. He's not going to sing about it. He is not going to be entertained by it. He's not going to fill his mind with that which he knows to be false. We live in a world in which this stuff comes at us constantly. And at some point, you have to make a resolute decision. Get this stuff as far away from me as possible. I don't want it near me. And that's what he says. He says, put false ways far from me and instead graciously teach me your law. That's where I will find the strength that I need. And so that's the first thing. And then we notice also, he says, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. And here's a resolute choice. The way of faithfulness. I will set your rules before me. I have chosen this. Matthew Henry says, the choosing Christian is likely to be a steady Christian. Be a Christian that makes a choice to reject that which is false and to instead choose the way of the faithfulness. And there is a contrast here between false ways and the way of faithfulness. Those two verses put those in direct contrast. It's almost as though uh, the, the verses in the New Testament in Matthew enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide, And the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. It's almost as though he sees those two ways, the way of falsehood and the way of faithfulness. And he resolves that he will pursue the faithfulness of the word of God, the faithfulness of God revealed to him in his words. I will set your rules, I will set them before me. And so he chooses to study. He wants to have the word of God open to him. He wants to study it. He values it. He cherishes it. So I ask of us tonight, have we done the same? Do you uh, see that God's word is a great gift and a grant to you, the source of much uh, life and much joy and much illumination, and that he has given you this, and that you will value it, you'll cherish it, and determine to set it before your eyes constantly. Open this book, set it before your eyes, read it, receive it, receive the promises of it, receive the comfort and the challenge and the motivation that it gives to us. Open the word of God, make it the object of your study and your attention. And then he says, I will hold fast, I will cling to it, let me not be put to shame. It's a, a sense of desperation, the sense of this one thing I know. Everything else about me tells me this and that, 
But there's one thing I know, that God's word is true, and God is who he says him, who, who, who he reveals himself to be, that he is a faithful God, he is a good God, and whatever my God ordains is right, and to that I will cling, to that I will hold fast. I cling to your testimonies. Let me not be put to shame. And that's the promise. We won't be put to shame. And then finally, verse 32, I will run in the way of your commandments. Notice that. What a beautiful picture. I will run. It's a picture of alacrity, of quickness, of, 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 of speed. And so he sees, first, you know, the, song, the section begins with him, you know, uh, almost completely stalled in the dust, uh, melting with sorrow. And he says, oh, Lord, if you will fill my mind with the things of your word, with the wonder of your works, if you will fill me with your spirit and quicken me and give me life, if you will do these things, I will run. I will run in the way of your commandments. And so that beautiful uh, picture of, of freedom, freedom to come into the presence of God to dwell in his presence, and to receive from him all those blessings that he gives in his covenant of grace. And so that work of the Holy Spirit is at work in him, causing him to run. The running of praise, the running of wonder, the running of worship, the running of gratitude, the running of obedience, the running of joy, the running of the Holy Spirit in his life, filling him with power and energy that he did not have before. So we have, we have here a picture of a sorrowful Christian stuck in a sad situation, overcome by whatever it was, that, whatever it is that may overcome us, feeling God to be distant, And yet here, pursuing the means of grace, pursuing the word, pursuing the things of God, how we need to be doing that. And we we are, you know, we uh, that that uh, uh, that resolve. Wherever the word of God is, that's where I want to be. That's the source of my life. Wherever I can hear of the wondrous works of God, that's where I want to be. That's where I want God to be at work in my life. And that's the change that he prays for. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. It's also a wonderful way of saying that the freedom of obedience, the freedom of obedience to God's commandments. It's a, uh, you know, so often it is that in, in our culture, uh, well, in, in, in world history, and not just in our culture, in the history of mankind, uh, the, 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 the primal sin of mankind is to think of God's commandments as limiting, as denying that which we could have if we did things our way. And here we see that the way of, the way of life and the way of running and the way of joy is actually found in the way of obedience, of free and willing and joyful obedience to the commands of God. And that's why 
That's why the, uh, the law of God is precious to the Christian. It gives him the way in which he ought to run, the way he ought to live. And God gives us the freedom by his spirit to do that. Well, that's, uh, may God help us to love the word of God and to, to use it. Pray as this psalmist has prayed that he would through it quicken us as well. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do thank you for these words. And we ask that as we go through our pilgrimage of days, that you would help us to not be as absorbed as we tend to be in the obstacles and the difficulties and so often the fears and anxieties that overwhelm us. But help us, O Lord, to receive from you and from your word that life, that life that you have given to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name.